0: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, The Saint of Second Chances.
1: Bill wasn't just another owner. Bill changed baseball. And Mike, in trying to prove himself, blew it all up.
0: Today, we're talking to Academy Award winning director Morgan Neville and Jeffrey Malmberg. Mike Veck was a third generation baseball executive, son of the Hall of Fame White Sox owner Bill Veck. Together, they invented a new ballpark experience, rolling out giveaways, fireworks, and theme nights. But Mike's disco demolition night devolved into an actual riot, with rowdy rock fans charging the field and setting fires. After the debacle, Mike couldn't get another job in professional sports. But years later, Mike had the opportunity to purchase a minor league team and put his own stamp on it. Would this be his chance to prove to the world that he could make baseball fun? The film The Saint of Second Chances follows Mike's journey from outcast to innovator, chronicling both his professional and personal triumphs and tragedies. Can a man once tarred as a sports pariah get a shot at redemption and change the game?
2: Nobody ever cheered for Goliath. I mean, what do you think they were sitting in the Coliseum going crush that little bum?
0: And I'm joined now by directors Jeff Malmberg and Morgan Neville. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
3: Hi there. Hi.
0: So, Jeff, how did Mike Vecch's story get on your radar? And what about it made you guys think there was a good documentary here?
3: Mike is somebody that Morgan has known for... Many years, and I'll let him explain that aspect of the story. But one day, uh, Morgan and I were working on something. And he walked in, and he's like, "I know you always talk about making a baseball movie. How would you feel about the Vex?" And Vex is a kind of a magic word in the world of baseball. So, of course, I immediately jumped through that door and said, "Tell me more."
0: <laughs> Morgan, talk about your relationship with Mike. It started.
3: Truly,
4: because probably 15 years ago, I was um, shooting a documentary in Tennessee and I was driving around and on the radio, they were interviewing this guy who was so funny and so great, who was just talking about the power of fun and baseball and his crazy baseball family that when I got to where I was going, I pulled over and I waited for them to say his name. They said that was Mike Veck, son of legendary baseball Hall of Famer, Bill Vec. And I wrote his name down. I went to a website. I sent him an email and just said, I just would love to meet you sometime. And we ended up meeting up and starting to talk. And we kind of talked about doing something. And it kind of, you know, this went on for years. And then it kind of went cold. And then it kind of came back. And it's just one of these stories. It's like, you never know when you put your intention out there in the world, how it's going to come boomerang back, you know, what, 15 years later.
0: Well, that seems really appropriate, especially in this story. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Because this story is very much about like legacy and about intent and about things boomeranging back. And I'm wondering, you just mentioned Bill Vec, Mike's dad. Um, Can you just talk about him a little bit? Because he really is, I mean, that's kind of where you start. And it's also where Mike starts when he talks about his place in this story. Can you just like, Just talk about his importance in Mike's story.
3: There's obviously a lot of different ways you could tell this story. I think the most obvious one would be just do Bill Vec and tell the story of Bill Vec, and then get to Mike. But to us, the shadow that Bill creates on Mike was really where the story started to take off and where the story got interesting. I think everybody can relate to that idea of trying to live up to your family's expectations of you. And, you know, this is certainly the case with Mike Veck.
0: Hmm.
4: Yeah. And it's just worth saying, for those of you who don't know, you know, Bill uh, is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He owned at different times four different professional baseball teams. And, you know, some people call him the P.T. Barnum of baseball. You know, I, I know Mike doesn't love that because, you know, Bill didn't believe there was sucker born every minute. You know, he, he loved the fans and respected the fans. And that's kind of what made him unique. But he put his stamp on the game of baseball in so many ways that we still live with today. I mean, everything yeah. from the designated hitter, love it or hate it, to names on jerseys, to fireworks at the stadium, you know, on and on and on. And many other crazy things that were too crazy for other people to ever try.
0: What really struck me was that Bill really was pushing against kind of the gentrification of baseball. I mean, Jeff, do you have a sense of like, I mean, baseball really has changed in that way, right? We saw that Mike kind of invented the skybox. And now we know that the skybox and the VIP box is really like a hallmark of many new baseball stadiums. You know, even old baseball stadiums like Fenway have this like huge, gorgeous, like new VIP area. How do you think you know, Bill would feel (laughs) looking at today's sort of baseball marketplace. Do You think he'd be like horrified?
3: I don't know. You know, it's funny. We have a line in there which is like, you know, Bill in archive going at the rate we're going, you're talking about $100 bleacher seats. Quite obviously, that's going to destroy the game. And, you know, every time I'm on SeatGeek to get Dodger seats and I'm paying $100 for bleacher seats for my daughter and I, that, you know, thought hits my head. Baseball has changed a lot since Bill Vec was around, but there's still always at its core that beautiful part of the game. You just saw it a couple of nights ago in a Dodgers game with Brewster Derrick- or Gratterall and his mom. You know, it was the most touching thing that's happened all year. And those kind of human stories in baseball, it doesn't matter at the end of the day how commercialized it is. There's always going to be that touching side of baseball. And that's really what we're trying to zone in on, on this film.
4: Yeah. And, you know, Bill was part of kind of the end of an era of baseball, you know, where baseball was really a local sport and you made your money by how many people showed up in the stadium and you paid your players out of how many hot dogs you sold and things like that. You know, now there are these big national TV deals and on and on, you know, so many different ways of monetizing, But it was really kind of the Wild West. And Bill was 100 percent one of those last Cowboys, you know, fighting fighting that battle, Um, you know, up until the end of the 70s. And when he finally was forced to sell the White Sox for the last time, you know, baseball's become something else Uh, to Jeff's point. There's still magic there. I feel it.
0: Yeah. So we have to talk about Disco Demolition Night. I have a question about it. And uh, Jeff, maybe you can answer this because it seems like there was this very successful disco celebration promotion, right? And then Disco Demolition Night followed. So was that sort of just like kind of a mean-spirited dig at disco? Was there sort of a sense that fans would just like be really into this idea of like pushing back against disco? Because I know that was a thing (laughs) at the time, right?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in Mike's eyes and you see it in the film uh, and from his point of view, he was really trying to get people into the stadium. Old Comiskey was huge and that team was horrible. So, you know, (laughs) Mike's efforts and you see a little bit of them, you know, time prevented us from all the various schemes he had to get people to the park. But at the start of it, of course, it turns into something else. And that's something that we deal with as well. But the start of it was really just a function of trying to, like Morgan said, pay players by getting people to go through the turnstiles.
0: Yeah. So some of what went wrong at Disco Demolition Night seems like it was like part of the conception of the night itself. And some of it seems like maybe it was a little bit beyond his control. Um, Morgan, where do you think it all ultimately went wrong?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as as you said, you know, Mike had done a salute to disco night. It was a big hit. So he said, well, my dad always says, think opposite. So he did this um, <laughs> disco demolition night. And, you know, there was a local kind of shock jock, Steve Dahl, who had been kind of who had done a kind of a novelty song called Do You Think I'm Disco to the theme of Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy, kind of making fun of disco music. And he tapped into a whole bunch of kind of teenage Kids who were rock and rollers who were kind of sick of disco taking over it had taken over one of the big rock stations in Chicago, and I think there was just kind of a like this young rock and roll crowd that showed up and you know I think you know Mike says in the film that i i think, I think there is a little bit of blame the fact that nobody believed Mike when he said there were going to be a lot of people there, you yeah. know the police didn't believe it, so they didn't send enough officers you know it 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 was a bit of a free-for-all.
0: The baseball is no longer the story. It's this crowd. Yeah, you know we're over the ball. You know it's amazing. We got the greatest country in the world, but you know what? We have become followers. So many people insecure, don't know what to do with themselves and how to have a good time. They follow someone who's a jerk.
1: Well, that's a situation here. There are now I'd say ten thousand people on that field, Bill, without any question.
4: And I think Mike was expecting, you know, 35, 40,000 people. It turned out to be not only capacity crowd, which was what, around 60, but there were tens of thousands of more people locked outside of the stadium trying to get their way in. So, you know, I think everybody underestimated the size and then the kind of the ferocity of what that much adolescent rock and roll attitude and a bunch of beer was going to (laughs) do that night.
0: Now, I'm curious, um, Jeff, do you think that some of the old school baseball writers who were kind of purists about the game had just been kind of waiting for an opportunity to to stick it to the VEX and like and their chance to sort of write those kinds of headlines about them after this all went down?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and and Mike feels that way, too, you know, that Bill had been sticking it to them in hilarious ways and always getting the last laugh. And, you know, as Mike says in the movie, no one roots for... Goliath. You know, it, the VEC way is to find a Goliath, claim your David and find the nearest reporter and buy him a beer. You, know, I mean, that was their style for decades. So I'm sure that the owners of the New York Yankees, who he'd been having fun with since his days in minor league baseball with the Milwaukee Brewers, they were all aiming at Bill. And I think this was just a nail in the coffin and unfortunately for bill and then really unfortunately for mike that's that's from an owner's perspective this was the, they created their own target on their back
0: So we have to talk about your creative choices in this film. You really lean into the joy and some of the absurdities of the story. It's like a little bit Wes Anderson, a lot Goodfellas some of the time. Uh, You've got Andy the Clown drinking Schlitz beers in the Bard's Room with Chet Lemon. I'm just curious. I would love to hear this from both of you. So I'll start with you, Morgan. What was the style that you were aiming for when you guys were talking about this?
4: I mean... You never know exactly what it's going to be, but I think a lot of times you listen to your subject, you know, and the Vex were show people. They believed in value. They believed in fun. You know, Mike wrote a book called Fun is Good, and it just felt like there was not only license, but kind of responsibility to tell the story in a way that was Vecchian. And, you know, I think we talked a lot about what that might be you know, so many of these stories that we were hearing from Mike, we wanted to tell, but we just couldn't figure out quite how to tell them, you know, and how to make them come alive. And we kind of came up with this idea of doing these recreations. these really kind of over the top recreations, which are really more reflective of Mike Mike's <laughs> memories than they are maybe of reality.
0: Yeah. Jeff, what do you think about that? Because one of the things that really stuck out to me—the scene with the exploding scoreboard—it was a recreation in the style of a flashback. Like it was almost, it was like it was like a tape. It looked like old tape, but it was a recreation.
3: So, Mike, can you explain to me how this all works? What my dad uh, realizes, home runs, they're basically dull, right? You know what I mean? It's like a little crack in the bat, the ball's gone, and that's the end of the excitement. So we we sort of figured out, okay, how do we spice things up a little bit?
0: (laughs) I mean, can you just talk about the inspiration for that? Because I honestly, I have seen a lot of Netflix documentaries at this point. I've I've watched Recreation's done a million ways. I've seen animation. I've seen people doing it themselves. I've never seen anything like that before.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that was some of the most fun we got to have. Certainly, I'll speak for myself, that was the most fun. I got to have was, you know, sitting there and trying to, you know, figure out what we we're going to be talking about and what it felt like. And then Morgan and I just comparing notes. on like, OK, well, how would we visualize that? You know, that was really where all this came from. And with the exploding scoreboard. I mean, Mike, you know, Charlie's kind of running around with what appears to be a, you know, fireworks kit or something from the side of the road. I'm not sure that's quite how it worked. But, you know, it is interesting when you look at the film, how you can start a scene in recreation or start the scene in archival. And whatever your first note is, the rest of the material kind of falls into. So it was kind of a half news report that we, you know, there are a few new news report shots and then we tried to find a camera that kind of matched that and put some extra little you know video hits in there and things like that and it really just kind of you know and then when you add the fact that the player is explaining the story during that whole time it's just it's this weird kind of soup that kind of short circuits you and you sort of have to kind of give into it i guess you would say
0: yeah so is that really mike playing his dad in the reenactments
3: how would you feel about playing
2: your dad in this movie I'm not cutting off my leg, period. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, because the
0: makeup is super good. And you we see you ask him that question. And then the entire time I was like, is that really Mike playing his dad?
4: <laughs> <laughs> it is Mike. It is Mike. And, you know, Jeff revert to Charlie. But Charlie Day plays our young Mike. And, you know, he he was so good at it and so game.
3: All right, yeah, I know they think women can't play baseball, but let me tell you who can't play baseball. I can't play baseball. Okay, you can play baseball. I want you to come out here. Come on, try off
2: the Saint Paul Saints, all right? Will you do it?
4: And a baseball fan and a documentary fan and just kind of jumped in and was game for whatever we threw at him, which was definitely some some weird stuff.
0: So we can't overlook that the narrator here is Jeff Daniels, who establishes this sort of uh, tone for the whole film. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that tone, Jeff, and what you were going for and what it was like working with Jeff Daniels?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think one thing we keyed into really quickly, Morgan, was this idea that that narrator needs to be a character. And, Mm. you know, for somebody like Mike, Who his character, he seemed to sort of be this guy who came up to you at a bar and started telling you a story, and you weren't quite sure if you believed it all. We started to realize that we kind of needed, like, I would think of it at the time as I remember thinking of it as a course corrector, like somebody to kind of restate the narrative in a more uh, kind of honest way or course correct Mike a little bit. And once we tuned into kind of that key, I think that's when we started to find the voice of the narrator
1: many around the stadium began to wonder what mike kept in his private office it was mostly empty except for a dartboard on that dartboard was every bad thing said about him in his entire life it was a really big
3: board um, But it was a lot of work. I mean, it was a lot of Morgan and um, Alan Lowe, the other editor and myself, uh, just sort of talking randomly into our phones and trying to cut stuff and recutting and re rewriting in the Avid. So, you know, it was a really interesting process. We never really put anything on paper, but we were just constantly kind of working. I think Alan, I remember he told me he had five hundred you know, audio memos of voiceover record, you know, just really? trying to find what that person sounded like. Because if I, we always felt like if we we're going to use a narrator, we didn't want to be lazy about it. We wanted them to contribute to this wild party, right? They had yeah. to have it come at it from a certain angle.
0: Hmm. So what was Jeff Daniels like? Was he game? He was like super game to just dive into this process with you guys?
3: He was,
4: again, another Midwestern baseball fan. So, you know, I think... He he got it, you know, and, and he had met Mike before. So, I mean, he was he was familiar with the Vex, too. Um, and, you know, he's just got such a great kind of familiar voice. But I think what what Jeff just said, which is, you know, that he's he's not the voice of God. He's a guy who's reflecting on what he's saying, too. Yeah. You know, and I I kind of loved what he was able to do with it, where.
1: He's telling you a story you can't quite believe. His dad ran the Cubs, so when he was a gopher like Mike, he planted the famous ivy at Wrigley. And when he owned the Indians, he integrated the American League with Larry Doby and Satchel Paige. But what you don't hear is that legend has it, years before Jackie Robinson, he schemed to buy the Phillies and replace all the white players with black players. But that plan didn't get very far. And I think
4: that was something Jeff and I talked about from the beginning, which is like... This film for a documentary is kind of like a fable, you know, and there, you know, you don't talk about a lot of documentaries as fables, but there's a quality to this film that is like a crazy story, you know, that somebody tells you, you know, we talked about films like Big Fish and these other films that, you know, are kind of yarns and that this film should kind of lean into that because that's kind of what is at the heart of, of a lot of what Mike believes in, which is storytelling.
0: Yeah. So there was this gap in Mike's career where he wasn't in baseball. And I'm curious, Morgan, if you can talk about how he found his way back to baseball, because there's sort of like this very quick, you know, little montage of stuff he did (laughs) in between. So what brought him back to the game?
4: Yeah. I mean, after disco demolition, Mike left the White Sox, was basically banished from baseball, couldn't get a job, tried to get jobs, moved to Florida, floundered about, the whole time was always wondering how he was ever going to get back into baseball and very slowly started clawing his way back in. I think he had a little bit of an involvement with the team in Florida, the miracle. And that was just yep. enough to put him on the map to get a call from, uh, Marv Goldklang who was ended up becoming his business partner when he was starting this new independent league in the early nineties And Mike was given the opportunity to start this brand new franchise in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, where there had been a St. Paul Saints back up until the 1950s, maybe the early 60s, but they hadn't had a team for decades and um, was not a huge market. And the Minnesota Twins were seven miles away and they were a great team at the time. So it was a bit of a kind of a fool's errand. uh, And I think Mike was all too happy to play the fool in that case.
0: Hmm. So, Jeff, I'm curious what you think because this is an independent league, right? And they're renting the stadium adjacent to a freight train track. Were the stakes really high or were they really low? I mean, that was something <laughs> I found myself wondering over and over again.
3: I mean, I think for someone whose whole being wanted to contribute to the family business and the family legacy, the stakes were extremely high because if this didn't work, It had been so long since he'd been offered an opportunity. I think he figured he'd never be offered one again. You know, he had no money. He borrowed $50,000. I think he put $50,000 on credit card. So, yeah, I think for him, the stakes were extremely high. Um, And, you know, as you see in the film, it's amazing what happens. He bets it all. And it's just, wild. that's the kind of person he is.
0: Now, I'm guessing you guys went through many, 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 many hours of tape um, from Saints games, from in between innings and so forth. And I'm wondering, um, Jeff, I'm going to ask you this question first, but Morgan, I have to hear your answer to this, too. Do you have a favorite gimmick or promotion or thing that you saw (laughs) Mike invent or do uh, with the Saints that you just can't stop thinking about?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's one that we tried to fit in and we just never could. And f- one of the fun things now that we get to show the film is Mike has has acted this out at Q&A. So it's, it's that point where you get to live beyond the kind of uh, realm of your film. Um, but it's uh, this thing where he hired mimes to do replays. And and you see just a glimpse of mimes in there, but we never quite could get that scene to work. I'm not sure why, but um, he literally would have mimes doing close plays, uh, but in mime form. And his claim is that... Saint, for some reason, St. Paul and Minnesotans don't like mimes, and they started throwing food at the mimes, and it was the greatest concession night he'd ever had, uh, <laughs> which is, I don't know if it's true, but it's a great punchline to to the mime night. That's a great one.
0: <laughs> what about you, Morgan? Anything stand out for you in particular?
4: I mean, I think the one that's in the film about Nobody Night that he did in um, Charleston is yeah. just one of the weirdest Promotions so of all time, which is basically having a game with full concessions, programs, hot dogs, everything, but locking the gates and having not a single spectator inside the stadium. I've never seen a team lock out their entire fan base and everybody loved it. And they would look over the wall. The key to it is that it had to be the real operation. We opened up concession stands, actual workers in the concession stands serving no one. So there were lines of people on ladders outside the stadium trying to get a glimpse of the game, but that was, you know, almost kind of performance art, which yeah. is very, very Beck.
0: Yeah, I really loved his commitment to psych eggs. You know, even at the expense of the experience of the spectators, like the Minitron, frankly, was my favorite uh, sort of perpetual psychic in that stadium. I'm trying to think of ways that I can, like, incorporate that into my life in some way, maybe hang a tiny clock on the wall or something like that and annoy people who come over to my house. I don't know. But I just his real his commitment to just sort of the absurd um, just struck me over and over and over again. And it did strike me that you probably had lots of those that you didn't have time to. I mean, yeah.
3: And there were whole periods where you would see him get bored and then he. Do like there was this period in Charleston where we, Morgan and I would call it his Baroque period and you know nobody night was that where he was literally just playing with form and he had completely it had gone completely meta and strange you know um, and I mean there were hundreds of them it was it was always trying to you know wiggle in anyone that we could and uh, Sister Roz comes to mind as it's not really a gag but I mean as an element to this amazing kind of circus. Yeah. Um, she's one of them.
1: Over in left field was Sister Roz, a nun who had been banished from her parish for giving massages.
3: I have heard about this woman all my life, and I started line for hours to get her, and she's the best.
2: She couldn't help that she came from Fargo, North Dakota, and had hands of steel.
0: Yeah, I kept thinking also about sort of like for lack of a, a better comparison, like Howard Stern and his sort of like whack pack of characters, because he didn't just have psychags, He also had characters like people that were sort of part of the adjacent right crew that were part of the experience. Well, <laughs> and I mean, fans. coming
3: coming. For, it's all from Bill, you know, and and might be the first person to say that with great pride. I mean, Max Patkin, the clown prince of baseball, was a player that blew out his arm for Bill. And he said, you know what? You're pretty funny. Why don't you go down the first baseline tonight and uh, start to doing gags and he became the clown prince of baseball you know so it's i think uh mike just was always kind of taking what bill did and extrapolating it and questioning it and pushing it
0: So it's not just in the title, there is this recurring theme of second chances throughout the documentary and and not just Mike's. Um, two of the players that he puts on the Saints are a Daryl Strawberry, who's, you know, been pushed out of the league for reasons, and an athlete born without legs, Dave Stevens. Um, can you talk about their relationship, Morgan?
4: Sure. I mean, it's it's one of the most unlikely stories, you know, so Strawberry, as many people know, you know, famously kind of. Uh, flamed out of major league baseball because of substance abuse and other other issues and at that point in his career in his late 30s no team would touch him literally no no team no minor league team no major league team and mike gives him a shot you know with prodding from libby his his wife
2: and conscience and libby's opinion is you hypocrite Even if it's a fourth chance, you've already said you need 200 chances yourself, and you're not going to sign the guy because he has a drug history, and you're a drunk, and you've had all of these kinds of problems, you've done things you're not, and you're not going to sign
3: Daryl. Well, you're really something.
4: Daryl comes and still is not sure if he wants to play baseball and meets this other guy who Mike has invited, Dave uh, Stevens, who's you know, born without legs, but who had been writing Mike letters, just saying, I just want one at bat. You know, I'm a real athlete. I really want to show I can do this. And I think Daryl was used to being kind of the, uh, the freak at the freak show where all the cameras were always on him. He shows up at the stadium and there's this other guy who feels like an outsider too, who people don't want to make about. And, and their, their otherness bonded them together and they found themselves simpatico with each other and Dave teaches Daryl how to love the game.
2: Watching Dave Stevens it got him outside himself. I took great joy in that friendship. What would be your nickname for me? Stud. Stubber. Stubber stud. Stud. You're a stud. He's a stud, huh?
1: (laughs) We can relate. You know, we can relate to life. I mean, he sees
4: the joy and the hope and all, you know, all this, what this one app bat would mean to one person. And it's something Daryl had taken for granted forever, his whole life, maybe. And it's really kind of a magical story that we knew bits and pieces of. But until we made the film, we didn't really know what the story was. And, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite stories I've ever been able to work on.
0: Um, so Mike wasn't in this alone. He had his wife, he had his son, and of course he had his daughter, Rebecca. I We really have to talk about them. I mean, Libby especially, obviously you said he was his conscience, a support system also. You know, b- before we get into Rebecca's story, his family really was a support system for him. And they also became part of really the game and the business. Um, Jeff, can you talk about that a little bit and how important they were? Uh, to him in his work as well as in his, you know, in his life.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's one interesting thing about this is the how it kind of reflects back from the period where Mike had to go on Bill's turf to get to know his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's one aspect that as we made the film, we started to realize that, you know, that situation was coming up again, that situation of someone who works really hard, who's really passionate, but maybe doesn't have all the time for their family that their family needs. And so, of course, his first move is to invite them in um, to help out. And unfortunately, with what happens with Rebecca, um, you know, that starts to be not enough, you know, hanging out at the ballpark while dad works 17 hours a day is not going to solve the problem. So mm. it's really a situation where that's up the stakes in Mike's life and in the film, where he needs to find a new way of dealing with things than this Vecchian concept of just working yourself into the ground.
0: Hmm. So Mike does come off as this person who's just so filled with life and filled with joy. And even when he's talking about Rebecca's long illness and even the period before and after her death, he does it with so much affection and with smiles and with, you know, joyful remembrance.
2: Oh, my God in heaven. I'm not crying, Rebecca. I just got something in my eye. (laughs) She would have taken no prisoners with this one. She'd have already been on her fifth line. You're crying, Daddy. Well, that's the way it is with when you're a father.
0: I'm curious, Morgan, how much do you think his life and what he went through and just sort of the way he goes through life himself prepared him, you know, for what ended up happening with Rebecca? Because I, I just don't think a different kind of person could have, you know, talked about it the way that he talked about it.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it made it easy. I mean, what they went through is unimaginable. I think it was one of the real tests. We talked about this a lot of like, you talk about fun and joy and love, but when something really profoundly tragic happens to you, do those things still mean the same to you? And they were really put to the test. And it's not that they weren't profoundly sad and they were but i think those tools of love and joy and happiness are the things that help you maybe more than anything else i can think of i mean the way they dealt with something like that it models for me how i'd like to think i would deal with something like that i mean it's a bit of a of a guide of like these people dealt with it in this way all of them together that you know to me it's it's really brave And, and in fact, I think making this film, I know making this film was another way of trying to do something positive with the legacy of, of Rebecca. And so it's very easy to end up in a kind of a spiral of sadness about things. But I think it's more important to remind ourselves how to find our way out of those whirlpools.
0: Yeah. You know, I've never heard anyone say before, and Jeff, I don't know if it surprised you when Libby said that, um, she was glad they didn't know about the illness that Rebecca really had, because if they had known, they would have lived their life in a very different way. Were you surprised when she said that?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, it's one of those things where it surprises you for a second and then it makes total sense. You know, um, they thought that Becca was going to be the first female minor league baseball team owner. And then they thought that Becca was going to be the first blind minor league baseball owner when there was the first diagnosis. And then when, uh, you know, they traveled down the road a long way with her, with that in mind, it was not going to stop her. Um, so I think she's right. And I think that's such a great way to look at it again, like Morgan was saying, trying to find that joy inside there, you know, it's something that in a funny way they taught her, but during that illness, it sounds like, she taught. She kind of boomeranged back to remind them, you know, and I think that's really beautiful.
0: So you make the case that the Vex changed Major League Baseball forever by inventing things like fan promotions, the luxury box, you know, even the dog going to you know bring the the ball to the pitcher and 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 you know the way that fans interact with the game. What do you think that Mike's impact on minor league baseball has been?
4: Huge. Huge. You know, I mean, the St. Saint Paul Saints became a kind of a legendary team, you know, and as we say in the film, you know, Mike and his partners ended up buying, you know, half a dozen other teams all over the country. And a lot of people took notice of what they were doing. Um, and in fact, you know, the the St. Saint Paul Saints, Mike eventually just very recently this this past year sold the Saints with his partners to the Minnesota Twins. So the Saints went from this tiny independent league team to the AAA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. And we talked to the president of the Twins and they said, we didn't buy the Saints to make them like us. We bought the Saints to be more like them. You know, Mm. I think a lot of people in baseball, major and minor, are trying to learn from this and say, you know, what can we do that can make the game special in that way? How do we embrace the fun, embrace the community, embrace what it is we're doing. And uh, yeah, I I think so many people have taken pages out of that book now.
0: Yeah. Jeff, I can't help but think of this team that everybody follows on social media, the Savannah Bananas, you know, this team that's based in Savannah, but they travel around the country. They're basically like the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball, right? It's like a circus where it is just about fan experience. Do you think that team would exist? Without what Mike Vec has done in minor league baseball?
3: Absolutely not. And, you know, it's funny. I saw an interview where he directly, he said, you know, this is Vec baseball. So it's he knows where it's coming from. I know that Mike's a big fan of theirs. You know, it's funny. Bill Vec worked with the Harlem Globetrotters. So it's, it is that idea, you know, kind of... Uh, all these years later. So yeah, I mean, Savannah Bananas are incredible. I love some of the things that they do, um, but I also love that they acknowledge where that impulse came from.
0: Yeah. So there's this classic myth of the Fisher King, someone who fails as a young man and spends his life searching for a redemption arc. I'm just curious, you know, Morgan, you know, what does that arc look like for Mike Vec in your mind? I mean, it's it's
4: such a kind of a perfect I mean, what I, what I love about it is like, and what's kind of lovable about Mike too, is it's not like he's kind of a man on a mission that knows exactly what he's going to do. It's more like he's just a dog with a bone who is going to work harder, has the biggest heart, is going to do something. And sometimes he's his own worst enemy, but you root for a guy like that. You know, there is no sense of inevitability about Mike's eventual redemption and success whatsoever. And that, to me, is kind of more exciting than somebody who felt like a man on a mission. Because for all of his drive, there's also something kind of wonderfully shambolic about it.
0: Mm. Well, everybody listens to this podcast knows that I love sports documentaries, but I have never seen one like this before. Jeff Malmberg and Morgan Neville, thank you so much for joining me to talk about The Saint of Second Chances. It's just so wonderful. Thanks for coming on You Can't Make This Up.
3: It was fun to talk to you. Great talking to you. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Morgan Neville and Jeff Malmberg. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.